0: From the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C.
1: Welcome to From the Catbird Seat, a poetry podcast from the Poetry and Literature Center at the Library of Congress. I'm Ann Holmes, the Center's Digital Content Manager. From 2013 to 2016, the Library of Congress hosted six lectures as part of the Bagley-Wright Lecture Series. Established by Charlie Wright, publisher of Wave Books, the series provides leading mid-career poets with the opportunity to explore in depth their own thinking on the subject of poetry and poetics, and arranges for the delivery of a series of lectures that result from these investigations. On today's episode, we catch up with Matthew Zapruder, the editor-at-large of Wave Books and the former director of the Bagley-Wright Lecture Series. In conversation with Rob Casper, the head of the Poetry and Literature Center, Matthew gives some background on the Bagley-Wright series and discusses the six poets who delivered lectures at the Library of Congress. Dorothea Lasky, Joshua Beckman, Timothy Donnelly, Terrence Hayes, Srikanth Reddy, and Rachel Zucker. We'll also revisit some highlights from a few of these lectures that Rob and Matthew mention. All of the event recordings you'll hear on this episode are available as video webcasts on the library's website. So if the clips you hear today leave you hungry for more, remember that the full lectures are waiting for you online. That's enough from me for now. Let's check in with Rob Casper and Matthew Zapruder.
2: Well, I'm thrilled and delighted to be in the library's Jefferson Building Studio with my dear friend, Matthew Zapruder, to talk about the Bagley Wright Lectures, which the library hosted from 2013 to 2015. Thanks for being here with us, Matthew. So glad to be here, Rob. Uh, Let's just begin by talking about how these lectures came about. I know we're not the only institution that's had them, uh, but we were a part of this first run of of, uh, lecturers. Mm Mm-hmm. The project
3: grew out of an engagement that I, as one of the editors of Wave Books, along with Joshua Beckman, have um, with our publisher, Charlie Wright, around criticism and critical work having to do with poetry. We're interested in various critical responses to poems and how to present for the public uh, writing that illuminates the practice of poetry, and particularly poets who are sort of in what we call Mm mid-career. So... We, ha- we publish works like that, although we primarily publish poetry at Wave, but the idea came about to um, maybe support a separate activity that would be specifically to produce some of this new critical work through the support
2: of this uh, lecture series. And what were you hoping that these poets as lecturers might say that wasn't already being said by uh, critics, uh, poetry critics around the country or said in in a way that you really wanted to hear? It's been my experience
3: that poets are sometimes very reticent about their own creative work and about poetry in general when they are asked about it directly. And at other times, they can be incredibly lucid, particularly when they're put in front of a general audience. Um, And the evidence of that is, is that so much of the so many of the most important critical statements about poetry, the ones that we read today from throughout history, um, whether it's by someone like Robert Frost or T.S. Eliot or um, more recently, Audrey Rich or Audre Lorde, um, and in the distant past, uh, you know, Shelley or, you know, um, many, 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 many other poets. I could just go on list, list, list. Um, those began as lectures. And they often began as lectures in front of, like I said, general audiences. Mm-hmm. Um, a particular example is Wallace Stevens' famous lectures, um, one of them, which is uh, one of my favorite pieces of writing about poetry ever, which is called The Noble Rider and the Sound of Words, which was originally given as a talk in front of a general audience at, I believe, Mount Holyoke College. Um, and so I thought, oh, it would be so great to do that to have our best poets, our finest poets um in mid career do this in front of general audiences and what would happen what would they say and how would they talk about their own work and about the poems that they're interested in and so it was kind of an experiment i guess in a way mm-hmm. and so it wasn't so much what that i didn't see these kinds of things being talked about it was it was it was that i wondered what would happen if we put these poets in some interesting situations like that just to, to see what would what would occur right right i guess
2: Well, let's talk about the six poets who came here from 2013 to 2015. Uh, Dorothy Alasky, Joshua Buckman, Timothy Donnelly, Terrence Hayes, Srikanth Reddy, and Rachel Zucker, in that order. I'm sure you've had the chance to hear the lectures by all six of those poets. Maybe you could talk about what your favorite moments were in their lectures. Mm. My favorite moments in all
3: of their lectures were when they revealed something about their own ideas about poetry and not just ideas but their own kind of deep connections to poetry that, that, that those moments would arrive unexpectedly in the lectures. I mean I'm thinking about when Dottie Lasky talks about um, the material power of the imagination that she thinks the world of the imagination or the imagination imagination itself is actually a place that one can go and how she's and how it's a place that we can go together and the poem creates that space. That that helped me understand her as a poet mm-hmm. better, and I can point to similar moments in all the lectures when, when the poets, um, you know, they, they'd say something or their or their interest would focus around something often surprising, and I would think, oh, that makes so much sense to me. Even for these poets who I really know well, I know they work quite well actually. Mm-hmm. It still it still was so um, it was like an, an opening for me, mm-hmm. and and uh, yeah, so those were my favorite moments for sure.
1: In December 2013, Dorothea Lasky delivered a bagley Wright lecture at the Library of Congress titled The Beast, How Poetry Makes Us Human, which explores the wildness in poetry, of language, of the feral eye, of an animal nature that allows the poem to shred expectation. Let's listen to part of Dorothea Lasky's introduction to the lecture, in which she sets out some of these ideas.
4: Part of what my discussion today will help to make you think about is the question, how does poetry make us human, connect us to what the animal is, and give us guidance to be of and not of the animal? I think poetry does help us do this. One way it does is to give us a way to relate to animals. And why are animals important to poetry? Because they are the living travelers with us who are most like and unlike us. Another way that animals are important to us and to poetry is that they give us a way to relate to each other, both the living us and the dead us and the yet who are born to be, who can speak our language, who are waiting to write and rewrite the languages that are yet to be. In Derrida's The Animal That Therefore I Am, he talks about a kind of shame he has felt at the idea of a cat seeing him naked, a sort of malaise, as he describes, that a cat might see him as a thing, that he might be seen through the eyes of another, in this case, an animal, a cat, as the animal he really is. He writes of this shame. Ashamed of what and naked before whom? Why let oneself be overcome with shame? And why the shame that blushes for being ashamed? Especially I should make clear if the cat observes me frontally naked, face to face, and if I am naked face with the cat's eyes looking at me from head to toe, as it were just to see, not hesitating to concentrate its vision in order to see with a view to seeing in the direction of my sex to see without going to see, without touching yet, and without biting, although that threat remains on its lips or on the tip of the tongue. Ashamed of what and before whom, ashamed of being as naked as a beast, it is generally thought that the property unique to animals, What in the last instance distinguishes them from man? Is their being naked without knowing it? Not being naked, therefore, not having knowledge of their nudity, in short, without consciousness of good and evil. Naked without knowing it. Animals would not be, in truth, naked. I often wonder what insight Derrida gives us with these ideas and what that means for poetry. If an animal is not conscious of being naked because being naked is somehow like being wild and being a wild animal, then what does it mean to not care that an animal sees you? And if in poetry a poem has a wild lyric eye that on some level lets itself be shred and does not care that it is naked, then what does that mean about the reader and what the eye feels for the reader? After all, to let your poem be naked, despite the fact that you know people will read it, I think, is to have the ultimate empathy, the ultimate and absolute trust that your reader can bite you, but that you are in a dance of animals, and the need to express what is our greatest gifts as a humanity, the dance of the spirit through the imagination as manifest in language and color, is a need, a want, that you are willing to go into the wild night to achieve, to not say that you love something, to say not just that you love it, but that you want it. In Derrida's essay, What Sort of Thing is Poetry?, he says that a poem is a sort of like a, a hedgehog thrown out into the middle of a road, which is, as he writes, rolled up in a ball, prickly with spines, vulnerable and dangerous, calculating and ill-adapted, because it makes itself into a ball sensing the danger on the auto route. It exposes itself to an accident. No poem without accident, no poem that does not open itself like a wound, but no poem that is not also just as wounding. Maybe if the gaze of the wild is the poem that you want to but can never write, then in Derrida's definition, the poem is the thing that you run over on the road that is willing to get hit, open itself up to accident, that is animal, in this case hedgehog, in that it allows itself to to be available to be wounded and can do the wounding. In another lecture of this series called On the Materiality of the Imagination, I talk about the idea of the imagination being the space that a poem can open up where we can commune as humans and even as human ghosts, where the living and dead can gaze upon each other. It all begs the questions, what is a ghost and what is consciousness after we die? And what is an animal and what is animal consciousness?
1: We hope that segment of Dorothea Lasky's lecture piqued your interest. Like its subject matter, the whole lecture is wild and unpredictable. Before we listen in on the next lecturer, let's hear a bit more from Rob and Matthew.
2: It's interesting. My experience of the lectures by uh, these poets as compared to lectures by more conventional poetry critics was that they were blending the form of... Uh, talk, of uh, criticism, Mm -hmm. and even of uh, poetry writing. Mm -hmm. I remember with Joshua Beckman, he had these uh, little cards, and he was sort of shuffling through these cards, and each seemed like a a little poem in a way. Uh, And I just thought, I'd never seen anyone give a lecture on poetry quite like that. Yeah,
3: they're like these little thought islands almost, Mm -hmm. sort of leaping. From Which is which is very brave. I mean, when I have to do something like this, I I, I will write down every single word of it. You know? <laughs> but uh, but um, yeah, no, I agree. And I, I think, you know, they're poets. So, of course, the instant that I told them to do something, they would do the opposite thing. I mean, right. it, was, it was absolutely like, it's like uh, dealing with a pack of recalcitrant children, you know. Uh-huh. So the minute you tell them to do something, they're going to like do, go do the opposite thing, which was... Of course, incre- and then the thing they did was so much more interesting than my original idea. So, right. so that would often happen. Yeah, and the, and so the lectures were, yeah, they don't. I think that they functioned really well as public talks, and they were great experiences to be a part of. They didn't resemble, you know, necessarily like a job talk or something or something right. that you and I you and I have sat through a million of these things. Some of them really amazing, right. but a more traditionally formed kind of lecture although occasionally they would would be more like that
4: they could they could get
2: closer to that but i felt like there was a different kind of charge in general yeah. to how they were speaking and often there was a more personal angle to what they were speaking about for sure i mean i think of timothy donnelly and his talk and how much it evoked his childhood home for mm-hmm. instance
3: yeah that's a beautiful there's a lot that extended passage where he talks about kind of walking around his backyard and right. sort of the little the 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 wooded area that's sort of around and the stones that were there I don't know if that's the that's the that particular yep. talking and, yep. and uh, yeah they they did that again I mean that was something that you know I've known Timothy a long time he's a he's a friend I I edited his first book of poems his, his second book of poems the first one he did with Wave the Cloud Corporation uh, you know so I know him and his work quite well I know his family and there were all kinds of things I'd never heard him talk about yeah. that I do think have a lot to do with him as a poet and a person
1: in November 2014. Timothy Donnelly delivered a Bagley-Wright lecture at the Library of Congress titled Meaningfulness and Homesickness. He begins the lecture by reading The Skater of Ghost Lake by William Rose Benet, a poem Timothy encountered early in his childhood, and a poem that's steeped in the imagery and tonal mystery of the natural world. As Robin Matthew just mentioned, Timothy then moves into a description of the forest behind his childhood home, opening up the lecture into a broader reflection on poetry's urge to both make and resist meaning through patterns, the enchantment of sound over sense. Let's listen to the opening segment of the lecture after Timothy Donnelly reads The Skater of Ghost Lake, and then we'll skip ahead to hear another segment in which he elaborates on this poem's impact.
5: Behind the house I grew up in, there was a small forest. I knew about an acre of it by heart. I've often told myself that if I could travel back to a time before the forest was destroyed, or if the forest hadn't been destroyed but instead remained the way it was throughout my childhood and for a long time before that, then I would still be able, even blindfolded, to find my way around it. I would know how long I had to walk and in what direction in order to reach the sea-green, lichen-covered boulder, roughly cone-shaped, half-submerged in the forest's topsoil. I could could place my hand in the shallow divot chipped into the top of it that would fill with rainwater whenever it rained. Sparrows and jays would bathe and play in it after the rain had passed. Often when I played with action figures, the boulder would morph into a rumbling volcano. A short distance to the west, the tallest tree I knew at the time, an old red oak, rose up from a mossy incline, sometimes with a number of moon-white mushrooms appearing overnight around its base. And on at least one occasion, the bizarre orchid known to us as the lady's slipper, which I was told to hold sacred and never to let anyone pick. It was hard to imagine anyone would want to pick it anyway. It wasn't exactly a shoe-in for the bud vase on the breakfast table. But in its way, it was magnificent, a bright pink veiny brain on a stem, and though it looked like nothing else in the forest, it was clear that it belonged there. Behind the oak, an old old stone wall, half dilapidated, the kind you find all over southern New England, ran off into the distance, past where I was allowed to travel alone. Most of these walls were built in the mid-18th and early-19th centuries, I later came to know, first by the crop farmers who struggled to till the region's dark, rich earth, which they would curse to find as crowded with granite as the night sky appeared at the time with stars. And later, after the crop farmers migrated west, the livestock farmers who took their place added height to the walls they inherited to keep their animals enclosed. I often walked along the tops of these walls as a test of my balance and daring. I remember one rock in particular about the size and shape of a couch cushion that seesawed back and forth when I would walk on it and I remember how to shift my weight from side to side to get it to keep still. Much of this stone wall was covered over like the other walls like it nearby with wild blackberry and greenbrier, whose prickly runners left shallow dotted gashes on the shins and calves. Surfing on this rock, which is what it felt like when I tried to steady it, produced the same sound as when I used the genuine volcanic rock mortar and pestle in my kitchen in Brooklyn. Beyond the wall, a field of low-lying wild blueberry bushes stretched out as far, flat, and wide as a baseball diamond, or so it felt to me at the time. But in truth, the bushes covered an area probably not much larger than a 1970s McDonald's. Part of what made the field seem so big, in addition to the fact that these memories were made in my earliest childhood before I knew the standard measure of things, was that I didn't just measure the field by eye, but also by hand, branch by branch, almost leaf by leaf as I bent over the bushes to pick from them. Even more importantly, it was measured olfactorily. The scent that rose from the berries in the heat, or else not from the berries alone, but also from the dark, small, leathery leaves, which turned fiery red-orange-pink in the fall, or even up from the acid earth itself, filled the air in the area so completely it seemed endless. Having at the time such a strong feeling for those pines and to this day associating them with my earliest awakening of some primal sympathy with the natural world, I was startled when I first read The Skater of Ghost Lake and hit these two lines in particular. Steep stand the sentinel deep dark furs and black stand the ranks of its deep sentinel furs. I didn't even know what sentinel meant at the time. I had to look it up in the glossary in the back of the school book. But when I did, it only confirmed what the poem had managed already to convey. Unquestionably the emphasis given to the image by its rhythm, repetition, and even the slightly unexpected modifier deep made a difference and a big one. There's an emphatic difference between reading sentinel furs in the middle of a rambling paragraph and the prominence it gains when read in the context of a highly patterned poem. The poem seemed to know right in the very fiber of it what I felt so powerfully but never knew how to discuss, not with anyone, not Directly Again, I felt as if a spell had been cast on me and also as if another, the one that would ignore or deny the value of what I had felt in the forest or that denied it because it didn't make the right kind of sense or couldn't or wouldn't be measured by the standard measure of things, had been briefly lifted. Even though it seemed essential to my understanding of the world, among the dearest things I knew, I had kept this feeling to myself, kept hidden this powerful awareness, not of the forest's distinct meaning, but of the sense of meaningfulness that I could be made to feel in it. I could tell it went against the current of my education and possibly my religion, and it certainly wasn't what the suburbs talked about over dinner. TV couldn't capture it, and moreover, I myself had no way of putting it. I had no suitable language for it, no special words to use for the meaningfulness, and no sense of how to make good use of the words I already knew. I didn't want to have to call the forest enchanted, although I could half sympathize with those who would.
1: It's difficult to excerpt this lecture because of its movement and form and expansiveness, But it's that same difficulty that we hope inspires curiosity in watching or listening to the full lecture. For now, let's check back in with Rob and Matthew.
2: That's what I was struck by uh, with the lectures that I went to, and I went to five of the six, Mm. is how hard it was for them, though they're all pros as poets and used to being in front of audiences, and though the audiences they faced at the library were fairly small, yet It seemed like it was such a different way of thinking about poetry, and they were in process. Uh, They hadn't quite figured out exactly what they wanted to say, and I I saw how the experience helped them better understand Mm -hmm. the arguments that they wanted to make about poetry. I mean, maybe not only, maybe in in just the uh, lectures they were giving, but... Also, I could see it having an impact on them in a larger right. sense.
3: Well, you can see, you could imagine that, that in a way it might be dangerous to know too much about your own process or who you are as a poet. You know, it's not necessarily the case that knowing more is always better. Right. Um, there's a kind of, um, you know, and then there's that famous uh, kind of idea, you know, especially around poetry that, come, that people often use that uh, quote from a Wordsworth poem. Uh, you know we murder to dissect this idea that the you don 't want to you don 't want to meddle too much in the poem or in how it was made or because you can you can end up killing it somehow right. um i don 't i 'm not a big believer in that idea, but I can see that it's it would be possible i guess to talk too much about one 's own process in one 's poems, which is why in the lectures, I tried to encourage them to not just turn inward right. not that they, not that that 's what they would have done but they right. but to it was fine to most i mean I love that you know, Terence talked a lot about Knight, or that Joshua talked a lot about, um, you know, other books, books that were meaningful to him, or we could go down the list or whatever.
1: Let's pause here to listen to part of Terence Hayes Bagley Wright lecture, which Matthew and Rob just mentioned. In January 2015, he delivered this lecture at the Library of Congress titled Ideas of Influence. He begins the lecture with an overview of a concept called the Liquid Network coined by popular science author and media theorist Stephen Johnson to describe how new ideas or movements often arise from common influence. In his lecture, Terence Hayes uses this sort of business framework as a playful launching pad to discuss liquid networks of poetry, the nature of influence that created the beat generation, for example, or the black arts movement, which he discusses at length. At the center of this lecture on poetic influence is the poet Etheridge Knight, who we'll hear more about now.
0: So now we are moving into Knight. So Knight was born in 1931. So he's older than those other guys, but only about you know five years or so. But he was considerably more seasoned. Before his conviction of armed robbery at 29, he would have likely been just as influenced by the cultural shifts in mid-century uh, America as his peers, the Korean War, the echo of two world wars abroad, Brown versus Board of Education, Emmett Till, Rosa Parks and other such signals of the civil rights movement here in the nation and then in his own home there's a kind of second wave migration of blacks heading north for work as his family moved from Mississippi to Kentucky and then to Indiana. But where Baraka, Sanchez, Clifton and Lord represented a kind of growing black college educa- educated class. Knight dropped out of school at 14, enlisted in the army, and then absorbed many of the substances and the sounds he encountered. I came to portrait not through any academic channels, he told Charles Rowell in the late 70s. And then he adds, all of the 50s were a whole drug scene. Uh, I fell and went to prison. The range of experiences dramatically separates Knight from his cohort, and I would also say the range of those experiences, how we sort of begin to see him as a more typical kind of model liquid man. I don't want to make a case for the idea of ancestry as the quintessential black or black arts poem or for Knight as the quintessential blues or black arts or black poet. Influence as I'm arguing arguing, uh, is not about promising but collaboration not thesis but synthesis. Knight it must be said was an uneven poet. He produced few poems especially after his release from prison in 68 but he remains a quintessential liquid modern man. One who, to quote uh, Zygmunt Bowman, who told us about the Liquid Network, had to splice together an unending series of short-term projects and episodes that didn't add up to the kind of sequence to which concepts like career and progress could be meaningfully applied. Uh, In his interview with Rawl, Knight, pretty much said, I live by poeting, I live from the people. I don't do anything but poet. Uh, Sometimes people attach me to universities. If I didn't poet, then I'd be a thief because that's how I started. Uh, I don't know anything else except to hustle. So Knight was to use Bowman's description of the liquid modernist constantly ready and willing to change tactics and short-term notice to abandon commitments and loyalties without regret and to, to pursue opportunities according to their availability, which is really the definition of a hustler. He was always ready to hustle. Hustling gave him access to a range of social circles he wore a street cred, his trillness, which would be a, a portmanteau, y'all know what a portmanteau is, a portmanteau of true and real, that's what trill is, uh, as a badge of honor that allowed him to enter many, many social circles. He was, as I've heard from dozens, uh, often lent money and it was charming as a fox. He possessed the slippery tongue of a romantic. He was a romantic, doomed by all the classic troubles of a bluesman, trouble with love, trouble with law, trouble with place. And I want to read this quote to you, um, which is something that he said. He's quoted by Larry Neal, who's writing an essay in 68 about the black arts movement, and he's just quoting some of the key figures. And so he quotes here something Ethris Knight says about black aesthetics. Knight says, unless the black artist develops a black aesthetic, he will have no future at all. To accept the white aesthetic is to accept and validate a society that will not allow him to live. The black artist must create new forms and new values, sing new songs, or purify old ones. And along with other black authorities, he must create a new history, new symbols, myths, and legends, and purify old ones by fire. Further, he must hasten in his own disillusion as an individual in the Western sense, painful though, the process may be, having been breastfed on the poison of quote, unquote, individual experiences, actually, in quotes. So I think that's either humor, hypocrisy, or a hustle. Um, Especially when I think about the sort of isolated individual of so many of his poems, including the idea of uh, ancestry like that, is really rooted in individual experience of nothing else. So I think, yes, there's some charlatan in the statement, uh, but we could also call it adaptability. We could also call it influence the way that, again, depending on his social circle, uh, he was going to say what he needed to say. Um, As with Brooks, there's little evidence of a kind of like set stagnant belief in his, in his poems. Instead, it's all fluid, it's all liquid, the things that he believes, the things that he sort of chooses to, to go to. So when he writes in the idea of ancestry, I have been at one time or another in love, he reveals first and foremost his relentless romanticism, his desire to be influenced, which is sort of what we, you might think about love, and this is sort of Plato too, right, in the symposium, the idea that friendships, platonic love, and erotic love, It's all about influence. It's all about absorbing uh, the the influence of your partner. So in that regard, he certainly was a, a classic romantic.
1: Terrence Hayes goes on to read and discuss some of Etheridge Knight's poems and expands on ideas of poetic influence. Make sure to watch or listen to the full lecture when you can. Before we conclude today's episode, Let's hear some final thoughts from Rob Casper and Matthew Zapruder on the Bagley Wright Lecture Series.
2: I think all these lectures felt like a means to an end for me Mm -hmm. in terms of getting new audiences to connect to poetry and also giving poetry readers like myself a new way to look at these writers Mm -hmm. and what their concerns were, how they imagined themselves connecting to us as they talked about what they cared about in poetry.
3: Yeah, they reveal. I mean, an interesting thing too about prose is that it's actually can feel a lot more exposed and, and intimate than poetry. That was a and in my own writing prose and my own giving of lectures that I've done in my life, I've felt that very strongly. There's almost a kind of distance you can have when you're reading the poem, like you like you push the poem out into the room, and it's just sort of out there and you're 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 looking at it and the audience is looking at it, and everybody's looking at it. But with prose it just feels and also just the rhythms of it and the mental movements of it feel mm-hmm. very it's almost like you've I feel like I have pried open my skull and all the, like <laughs> like the gears and machinery is like clanking around in there and everybody can see it and all of its uh, unglorious actuality. <laughs> and like and so I don't I don't love that feeling, but I think it can be exciting
5: yeah. if you're yeah. if you're
3: if you're interested in someone's work or just interested in how minds work yeah. to see that. And so I felt a lot of that in these lectures too. Like like wow that that's how you think about that. How
2: how strange and interesting. I right. wouldn't have thought through that idea that way. You know. Right. Well, thank you for. Uh, making this lecture series possible and bringing these lectures to the Library of Congress.
1: Thank you for joining us on From the Catbird Seat. To learn more about poetry past, present, and future at the Library of Congress, visit us at loc.gov poetry. You can watch or listen to the full events featured on today's episode by going to loc.gov discover and clicking on video webcasts. We'll be back next week for another episode. Stay tuned.
0: This has been a presentation of the Library of Congress. Visit us at loc.gov.